Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. If you're a young person and you've, you've got numbness and you've lost your, you've, you've lost an important part of your identity, your, se- your sexual function, this is a huge thing. And I think it's, it's a shame on those, hopefully a small number of people within our profession who who try to belittle these experiences. I've even heard some people try and discredit people who are saying these things. Ah, because this is what psychiatry kind of has the upper hand in the end, saying, ah, well, maybe these people have got wink, wink, nudge, nudge, a wee bit of a personality issue, da, da, da. And this is, uh, I find this, I find this particular aspect of psychiatry, and I'm not generalizing to all because most are good, very distressing. I'm Dr. Yosef Wood-Daring. Today I'm joined by uh, Dr. Peter Gordon, a psychiatrist over in the, um, in the British system. Uh, he's now retired. And um, Peter brings a very unique perspective to conversations about the, the risks of psychiatric medications. He was harmed um, when trying to come off um, Paxil or Siroxat. And, um, you know, since that time, he's really um, kind of had that, I guess what you'd call it, the red pill moment, you know, when, when you know, when you're forced to kind of confront, you know, how, you know, how you've been informed about the drugs and the risks of the drugs and such. And that happened fairly late into his career. And so I think he has a lot of really useful insights about that whole experience. So, um, you know, Peter, I'm going to, you know, I'm delighted to have you here. Thanks for coming on. Uh, For people who don't really know you too much, you know, expand a little bit on my introduction. Tell tell people just briefly about yourself. Uh, Thank you very much, Joseph, for inviting me here. And I'm very happy to talk. Um, I'm Peter. I live in Scotland um, in the foothills of this of Stirling Castle. I'm nearly 55 years old. I retired early from psychiatry three years ago. Um, I was a psychiatrist for over 25 years for the National Health Service. And I, by and large, I, I enjoyed my job. And I want to say at outset, I think I don't see psychiatry as a malevolent force. I don't see psychiatrists as all bad. Um, I absolutely hate the trope um, anti-psychiatrist because it's too easy to plump everybody together. And I think it reveals that my former profession can be very defensive. So that's the background. Um, my wife is a GP, family doctor. She still works. I have two grown-up children who have just about both finished at university. Um, and my outside interests, I'm, I'm a keen artist, a gardener, um, very amateur philosopher, and I make lots of wee films. Um, so that's my background. Um, sure. My, okay. Yeah. Oh no, I was going to say maybe a good place to start off would just be a brief summary of, of what what happened to you, Peter. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, I've shared some of this before, and and um, I'm happy to do so again. Um, and uh, over 25 years ago, my son had just been born. I was sitting my membership membership exam for the Royal College of Psychiatrists. So this is 25 years ago and I wasn't sleeping well, young baby, disturbed nights. I've always been and I'm happy to admit that I'm a bit quite a, a little on the anxious side. I wasn't sleeping, I was distressed. I went to my GP in rural Aberdeenshire which is quite remote in, in Scotland and uh, my GP recommended that I start an antidepressant for what she said explained to me, and I knew this because I was studying psychiatry at the time, social anxiety disorder, and a new drug had be, was being widely marketed at that time, widely promoted really across the Western world, and that drug was uh, paroxetine, Paxil, Siroxat. And um, 
even though I was a, 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 um, sitting the second part of my membership and I'm well aware of these drugs, it was part of, at this time in Scotland, we had what was called a defeat depression campaign. And it later transpired that this campaign, a five-year campaign, was uh, almost entirely, not completely, but almost entirely sponsored by the pharmaceutical industry. Mm-hmm. And it was to try and tackle um, low rates of diagnosis of depression and make sure a treatable condition was treated. And um, a major part of that and what I told my patients and what I was taught on a daily basis, and some senior psychiatrists today try and make out this wasn't the case, but certainly in Scotland, every single week that I went to education, I was taught about the chemical imbalance and the drug reps that came along to those meetings. And it was all about 5-HT. So I thought it was perfectly safe for me to take um, an antidepressant for anxiety. And I took it. Um, and maybe I probably felt a little bit better. Not hugely. I wasn't depressed. I was just anxious and not sleeping. Um, but probably about three or four months. This is a long time ago. You've got to remember, so I can't be entirely accurate with time periods. But I guess it would be three or four months. I just stopped it because I thought it wasn't making much difference. And the next day I felt hellish. <laughs> I had, the, I felt nausea flooding. I'd been, I'd slept poorly. Um, I felt flu-like. I had buzzing in my head. Um, I'm a keen gardener. I couldn't work in the garden. I couldn't sit down. I was restless. And I thought, what's going on here? And I said to my wife, I wonder, do you think, why am I feeling like this? Do you think it could have a relationship to the fact that I've just stopped my, um, Siroxide, my Paxil? And that was the beginning of my discovery. And to cut a long story short, it's been absolute hell. It has been hell ever since then, trying to get off this, uh, this medication that I was told uh, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't find dependence forming. And not only was it hell, over probably the vast majority of my career, right up until the end, many of my psychiatrist colleagues, good folk, nice folk that liked me, they didn't believe me. They would say things, they, they wouldn't say that outright, but they would say things, ah, this is recurrence of Peter's illness. And I would say to them, well, I was started this for anxiety. I didn't have this, you know, in with this, this, these, these states of mind and physical uh, symptoms in um, before this, and these states were brought about from protracted withdrawal. However, slowly I tried to get off this damn stuff, and I tried. I must have been one of the very early ones because I tried everything with my GP's help a bit. So I st- tried liquid and micropipette, and this was long before Mark Horowitz's stuff about um, hyperbolic tapering and stuff. And eventually, I, tr- I must have tried about four or five times to come off it gradually. And eventually I got off it using liquid. It probably, I can't remember exactly, but it probably took me at least a year. I felt hellish, but I got off the stuff. But in the course of the last few months, physically I was feeling terrible. Mentally I was feeling terrible. And I had, I was getting lower and lower mood and I was aware of that. So in 2005, and this, this changed my life for good. My children were then wee, and a wee daughter at kindergarten, a, a son at primary school. And um, I knew my mood was slipping and I became suicidal. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't, I wasn't eating. I was restless. I was agitated. I felt flu-like. I thought I was never going to get better. Anyway, um, then I became suicidal. I ended up in, I'll keep, I'll bring it to an end soon. Then I ended up in a psychiatric hospital. I, I wasn't detained against my wish, but well, I went in voluntarily and it was, I can't remember exactly, but it was probably about three or four months I was in hospital. I tried to end my life. Um, I was given multiple different psychiatric drugs to treat my 
depression, which I was depressed, but it was absolutely, you can ask my wife or anybody who knows me, it was, and I've never had anything like this since, directly related to the withdrawal from paroxetine. Um, and then eventually I was given ECT. And this is a problem. No, I don't, I'm not anti-ECT. I'm not bad. I'm not wishing to ban ECT, but I think ECT needs to be informed like everything else. But the ECT, it, it was like a sledgehammer. So it certainly got rid of some of my worst expedient feelings at the time. But as a result of the ECT, I really don't remember anything of very little of 2005. And that's a mixed blessing. So it's a good I don't remember what I put my family through. <laughs> but it's also sad because my children were then wee and you don't really relive your family life again. So an ECT, so eventually with ECT, I got to a sort of levelish state. It took me probably about another, it certainly took me another seven or eight months before I got back to work. Eventually, as an outpatient, I insisted to my psychiatrist, look, I think the only thing you can do is, because at that time they tried me on different antidepressants, I can't even remember which ones in combination. But eventually I said, I think you should put me back on my Siroxat. And here, so that's 2005, so here I am 17 years later, and I'm still on the stuff. And people have said, oh, Peter, why don't you, why don't you just try and withdraw slowly with taping strips? And I, I have very seriously thought about that. Um, and there's some, I've even heard some people say, oh, Peter, you don't have balls, you know, you're um, just, you know, you can get off this stuff. And well, maybe they're right. But I kind of believe my life is, you only live life once, it's fairly short. And I'm terrified, absolutely terrified of, I can cope with, with much heartache myself. But I'm terrified of putting my family through what I put them through before. So to cut a long story short, here I am in 2023, still on this paroxetine that I was told was not dependent forming and I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be ashamed of taking. And so that that experience just changed my life. You know, and Peter, so, you know, my my area of clinical practice now it's it's helping people with protracted withdrawal injuries is kind of how I describe it. Um, would you say you fully recovered after you got back on Paxil, or did you have enduring psychiatric and neurological uh, symptoms which which went on f- for some time afterwards? Yeah. And that way I've been, I haven't had the sexual side effects that some people ha- have had and it hasn't changed me as a person. What it, what I live with now is what are loosely called side effects and they're getting worse as I'm getting older. Okay. It could be I'm just getting older and I am getting older, but I have things like, um, I, I immediately was aware with, with taking Paxil Siroxat that I sweated more. So I sweat a lot. I also was aware that I dream a lot more, rapid, rapid dreams. And that's particularly the preparation of, of Ciroc. That just changes slightly from one generic preparation to another. So I don't sleep well, as my family would tell you, but I can live with that. Um, I have urinary problems, which some of them I know because I've had them investigated related to prostate, but our, our primate, or what, our principal factor in this, because I knew it from the start was Ciroc that affected how well I could urinate. So it's added to that. So all these things, I've, I have to balance this decision about this drug that is making my life harder to live with or, or whether I can very gradually, and given I've been on it for over 20 years, I'm aware I would have to re- probably try and reduce it. And people might say, oh, this is Peter exaggerating. But I think from other, from my own experience, I think my brain and nervous system has become dependent on this drug. The whole, my whole system has changed. I think I would have to taper over many years. And it's whether I can face doing that. And I think I've... I respect anybody's decision on this. There is no one right or wrong decision. And I think for most people, the, probably the best thing is to try very gradually with support and with guidance is to come off their, the, off their antidepressant if they want to. But my personal situation, I've probably come to the decision that I'm stuck on this expletives here drug for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. And you mentioned PSSD before. I mean, you know, this is something that came onto my radar in the last couple of years, but really has been, I guess, published about since the, I guess, the early 2000s. Um, Do you ever see this being recognized by, you know, Royal College of Psychiatrists or anything like that? No, no. The answer, the simple answer is eh, no. Uh, there's, there's a bit more awareness because of, of people are speaking up and well done to them because this is a very difficult subject to talk about. But the fact that psychiatry is not recognizing this, and I would say, in fact, I would go as far just like akathisia, being willfully mm-hmm. blind about it, I think is disgraceful. I'm sorry, but it's disgraceful. This is affecting young people's lives. Whilst I don't have PSSD, I do right from the start with as common of many people with antidepressants, a delayed orgasm. I'm sorry, this is it's just, you know, life is mm-hmm. <laughs> involves sex. Um, and and that, that's had an effect on my sex life. But, you know, I'm here where I am. I've got my children. But if you're a young person and you've, you, you've got numbness and you've lost your, you've, you, you've lost an important part of your identity, your, se- your sexual function, this is a huge thing. And I think it's, it's a shame on those, hopefully a small number of people within our profession who who try to belittle these experiences. I've even heard some people try and discredit people who are saying these things. Ah, because this is what psychiatry kind of has the upper hand in the end, saying, ah, well, maybe these people have got wink, wink, nudge, nudge, a wee bit of a personality issue, da, da, da. And this is, uh, I find this, I find this particular aspect of psychiatry, and I'm not generalising to all, because most are good, very distressing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so I want to ask you now about your experience, like, your experience. So, I mean, after something like this happens to you, I mean, you've been in the system, you've been prescribing the medications for a long time. I mean, maybe you weren't having a lot of questions about the way medications were being prescribed and the way we were thinking about diagnoses, or maybe you were, I don't know, but could you tell me about what that was like for you to kind of confront what had happened to you and how that changed the way you thought about, um, the practice of psychiatry? It's a good question. And I think uh, there, there's one other wee bit I should add in here that after, this was nothing to do with antidepressants, but I also, as well as doing a, doing a degree in medicine, I, I became, I graduated in medicine and then I left medicine to study um, what is essentially an arts degree in landscape architecture. So I've got this other side of me with these other interests. And I think that always encouraged me to be, to slightly loosen the ties of the hierarchical system of medicine where you you listen to other people. I'm a very gentle, mild person, but I've always felt it's important to question. And I, I believe it's by living you learn. You can't learn everything from a textbook. You just can't. It's not possible. Um, so it asked, made me ask questions. And I think a real turning point for me, and forgive me if I do get a bit emotional here, would be sometime, I can't remember the exact date. So I trained in Aberdeen and one of my colleagues who sadly dead was um, was a very prominent, a very likable and persuasive educator in psychiatric prescribing, particularly antidepressants. This is in Scotland. And he was giving an, educa- an accredited educational meeting for Scottish psychiatrists and the hall was packed. I would guess this would be about 2009, 10, something around then. And he was... At that time, there was there was absolutely no ignore. You've got to remember there was no acknowledgement of any dependence syndrome with potential for dependence syndrome with antidepressants or indeed any other th- any other side effects. And he was 
he was he had great mastery of language. He was a gifted speaker, and he had the he had the audience of psychiatrists in the palm of his hands. And he was writing a crescendo, and he was coming up and saying, and he was just mocking anybody who said, "Oh, antidepressants can cause this or that." And he said, and 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 then he finished on a rousing note. And this would be probably two or three or four years after I had. Essentially, I might, um, I could have completed suicide had circumstances been different. He said, ah, an antidepressants and showed a red top newspaper, which is some of the tabloid newspapers we hear. They cause antidepressants. I write. That's a Scottish term for saying, no, they don't. And everybody in the audience, all the psychiatrists got up because it was ending comment and they were clapping and cheering and they didn't notice. I couldn't stand. I was sitting next to my colleagues and I had tears coming down my eyes because I thought there is no chance I'm going to be believed. There is no chance I'm going to be believed. And I thought at that point, well, I've got a duty just to be as honest as I can be. I'm not, I, I, I will not try and demonize medication or psychiatry at, at all. But if we're to learn from life, we have to share experiences. And psychiatrists, doctors, academics and scientists need to listen. If they think the final point is evidence-based medicine that's based on eight to 12 week studies, where many of the studies are hidden in the drawers, the negative studies, where the studies are ghostwritten, where the eight to 12 weeks improvement is, is measured on rating scales, and where that education is disseminated widely by paid opinion leaders, a small group of people who work very powerfully and very effectively for the pharmaceutical industry and still do today, if we consider that to be the start, start and end of uh, evidence-based medicine well i think future generations will look back and think god you guys were a bit stupid and you've caused a lot of harm so this is why yeah. i campaign very strongly for transparency now in the scientific method and also to listen to people yeah i think this is going to be uh, maybe an interesting <laughs> place for me to kind of jump in as well um okay. so the the thing that I was that I always thought was very interesting about psychiatry is we have such a dark past. You know, when you know when we look back on different interventions that we've done previously, whether it was lobotomy or insulin comas or uh, and things like that, or or uh, you know water therapy and things like that, we we look back on it horrified at where we've been before, and then we think that you know wow, you know we're so much more humane now, but we have you know essentially a situation like yours. Now, where it was like you were harmed by a drug, not believed, and eventually, you know, ended up uh, needing ECT, you know, and, and how is that any less um, kind of horrific, you know, than, than than some of these things that have happened in the past? Um, and so I think, yeah, there's, there's this sense that, oh, right now we have figured everything out. <laughs> and, um, and there's this, you know, and, you know, when you're describing this, this story where you're in this presentation and they were kind of saying, you know, no antidepressants, they cannot cause suicides, you know, and, and they were, you know, I was, you know, I've been there, you know, I've, I've been through my own residency education and I've seen these discussions and things like that. And by large, that's, that's kind of what most, most people believe. And so, you know, I have my own ideas about like how these messages become so, uh, widespread and so accepted, but I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Like, how does that, um, you know, how do we have a medical education right now or a psychiatric education that is so, that has become so, um, I'm going to say biased in a way to say that, yes, you know, these drugs, they only save lives and, and that, you know, anyone who's really kind of talking about the harms of them may be doing it for some, 
you know, agenda, you know, whether it's a religious agenda or just a philosophical agenda on, you know, how they think people should deal with their problems. Yeah. I'd love to get your perspective on that. That's a really good question, Joseph. And I wish we had longer because I'm sure I could chat with you for a lot about this. Um, well, and we meet again. Don't save your time. Just and I'm certainly <laughs> not going to present the overall yeah. view that's the, yeah. the accepted wisdom. I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just Peter and I get things wrong like other people. But I, I've written one of my posts. I, I have a website. And I don't even need to mention it. People, if they come, I don't promote any of what I do. I just do it. I believe it's important to, to record what's happened to me and what studies I've made and what attempts I've tried to make science a bit more pluralistic I think is the best word and that and people say but how can science be pluralistic well it's the idea that the sciences and arts are completely separate well they're not but let me just go back to the basic question I think one of my posts that I have that's been quite widely read is called is is about what I've described as the narrative controllers now we can all try and control the narrative and but the narrative in psychiatry has been very powerfully controlled by, an, um, by, by a fairly small group that's had a wide influence on the rest of us. And here I'm not just blaming the pharmaceutical industry. I'm certainly not. I actually blame, blame more the medical, um, the healthcare system for just slavish, for, for rather not questioning enough of what, what we're doing here and not explaining to people that studies that people look for quick fixes. We all do. If we're suffering, nobody wants to suffer. So we want a quick fix and that's fine. And I certainly want to reinforce as many times as I can. If people have benefited from medications, I wish to take nothing away from people in that. I support that. That's fine. But in any intervention, there can be a range from um, positive outcomes to negative outcomes and usually a whole host in, in between. So why has antidepressants in particular, but not just them, antipsychotics and other drugs, why has it become so polarised? And I think partly this is because these narrative controllers have are very defensive and you can understand this. Careers are at stake, um, years of study, years of, of, of and, and when people have to revise previous considerations that have been the mainstay, that have been the orthodoxy for 20 or 30 years, they don't like it. So the narrative controllers are a small group, but um, I'm afraid vested interests have got hold of them. And these are not just money. You know, they're things like status, they're like power, there's positions in your university department, um, your positions within government, your status in social media, etc. All these things can become very important and I accept all those. But my argument simply would be, let's start with the money. At least in America, you've got the uh, Physicians Payment Act and that in itself is, I realise, is not sufficient. But if we're really talking about evidence, evidence, science should be based on the principle that it's it's quite complicated to explain this, but it's disinterested. It doesn't come from a particular direction. Science is just science. It's not coming from um, anybody's outside views, whoever they may be, whether they're personal, financial, industrial, um, government. So it should be disinterested. And that's, that ideal is almost impossible to achieve. You can't have a view from nowhere, but we should try our best. And I think there is plenty evidence out there to show that the the, the investment of money, uh, the relationship of the pharmaceutical industry and um, medical prescribing, not just in psychiatry, can lead to worse outcomes because the interests of the company are put before the interests of the patient. And I think, yeah, I was going to say I'm going to jump in here because this might be a good place for me yeah, to share it, some insights yeah. from from working at the FDA and then also working in industry. And so perhaps the easier place to start is by working in industry. And so when you talk about financial interests and how that may skew the dissemination of information, um, that's really clear when you work for a pharmaceutical company. So 
like after your drug gets on the market, I mean, you have your drug label, um, and then that's, you know, just online on the government website, mm. but the, um, the publication plan does not need to be balanced at all. There's no regulation for, for what publications come out of the company. So, um, you're going to get only positive publications. And, and so what, you know, what a lot of doctors, uh, think is, you know, wow, you know, I'm, I'm reading these articles, you know, in these journals, which are, you know, peer reviewed, mm-hmm. you know, they're, um, you know, they're trustworthy. Yeah. And, and because of that, I can, I can believe it, but these articles, they're really hard to write. You know, they take a lot of time. It requires a lot of editing. Mm-hmm. And so the people who have the resources to really even generate these articles, it's mainly pharmaceutical companies and they have these, you know, big divisions. It's called medical affairs, but the real word for it is, you know, it's, uh, it's like the, um, I guess you'd call it PR or, uh, or it's like the publicist branch, yeah. you know, medical publish, uh, publicist of the, the company where they're, you know, their job is to anticipate the concerns people may have about the drugs or maybe to, to answer questions that they think clinicians would have about them or maybe using it off label and different mm-hmm. indications. And so they generate these articles, you know, and they send them out to, um, th- these, um, you know, these journals, but it's, it's very one sided, you know, they're only going to be talking about, you know, positive things. And so, you know, Hey, you know, there's information that this drug may be useful in this one population. You know, these are the studies from our clinical trial and, and, you know, they're safe and effective as shown by X. And what I really started to see was that it's, it's not so much that they're lying about anything when they're making these publications because they're not, because they're, they're very rigorously checked. What it is, it's, it's, um, it's kind of manipulation by omission, yes. you know, that, that, that there can be bad things that are happening and there can be negative reports and there can be other people like, you know, David Healy or Mark Horowitz and things like that who are publishing, you know, concerns about these things. And, and they're just going to be drowned out. You know, they're not going to be picked up by the company because there's no commercial agenda at all to do that. And so they're going to say, oh, we don't want to, you know, we, yeah, we, we're not going to do this. You know, F- FDA is not making us do anything like this. I mean, we've already kind of have these risks there. So the way the medical literature is skewed is, is it's mostly by omission. Yeah. And so that's why it's so easy for people to say, you know, these are safe, you know, I read good journals, I read hardbound heavy books, you know, I, you know, and all of these things. And, and it's because this information doesn't even enter there. And so now let's go over to drug regulators. And so I don't know how it's done over in, in the UK, but it may be kind of similar. The, the pharmaceutical um, companies mostly fund the FDA. And I know when you, when, when people hear that, they're going to say, Oh my God, you know, how, how, you know, how horrid, you know, how could this even happen? Um, but it's, again, this, it's this subtle way that things are manipulated. So the PDUFA Act, at least in the US, meant that we would get a lot of funding. Well, sorry, when I say we, so the FDA would get a lot of funding from the drug companies if they could meet certain milestones. And those milestones were linked to drug development. So it's saying, you know, FDA, when I give you a new protocol, you know, for a drug that I want, for, for a drug I want to study mm-hmm. and I want to start this trial, I need you to review it within 30 days because that's in my interest to kind of get the study off the ground. And because, you know, we need to develop things. We can't just have this sitting over there at the FDA for six months. You know, that's, 
So we're going to give you money, but you're going to have to commit to doing this mm-hmm. within 30 days. The other thing they said was, we want new drug applications processed completely in nine months. Mm-hmm. So we don't want to send you our three, you know, clinical trials or two clinical trials and our whole dossier and have you guys just sit there. Every second that we wait is another day that our patent is going to expire and, you know, people are going to, you know, <laughs> encroach on our territory. And so, and so, I mean, that doesn't seem, you know, when I say it like that and say that's where the money comes from and, and, and that's the stipulations, it doesn't necessarily seem evil or manipulative in no. any way. It's just, but the effect that that has at the level of the division is that's where the resources go. And so you have, let's say you have 15 to 20 psychiatrists working, um, working, um, in the division of psychiatry at the FDA. The majority of the time spent is on those milestones because mm-hmm. now there are consequences if okay. you miss them. And so I was, I was never kind of like encouraged to, Hey, you know, go and look at this side effect. You know, Yosef, we're getting a couple reports coming in of protracted withdrawal of PSSD. Mm-hmm. Why don't you go and, you know, mm-hmm. run an interview series, reach out to these people and do that. Mm-hmm. That was n- n- nothing like that ever yeah. happened. So everything was skewed towards, mm-hmm. okay, you know, we've got to get ready for this meeting that has to do with reviewing this protocol and we need to make sure that this application is in. So all of the meeting and all of the activity was kind of skewed to those metrics. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and, and by, because of that, like you could just like let drug side effects stuff slide until it got, until it got so big, you know, and people in the media were saying things and it was coming very uncomfortable for the agency. Right. Only then, wow. you know, would they say, wow, we're really feeling the pressure. We need to go and look at this. But yes. otherwise it's just kind of focused on f- facilitating drug development and the approval of ap- applications. And so. It's, it's very interesting, very interesting how kind yeah. of how money can kind of corrupt the, the, this whole thing. But yeah, that's, I mean, that was my perspective kind of being in there and, and how really, you know, you end up in situations where several people are harmed and they're just like, what is going on? You know, are the regulators asleep at the wheel? Are the doctors asleep at the wheel? And, and so that's, that was my perspective. Yeah. And so yeah. that's very interesting, Joseph. And it's, it's not that I, I'm sure you would confirm it's not that the, the, the individuals involved are necessarily bad people. They're really good people, but group behavior kicks in. And so, you know, you follow your peers and if they're looking for positive outcomes and the framework of the whoever you're working for is to look for that, then that becomes the norm. Um, so I've never worked on that side. So that's very interesting. But my 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 my, my I just on this theme and I will just mention it very briefly because of my experience I petitioned what well, was really it was really related to a slightly different area because I the last 15 years of my life I was an old age psychiatrist and a lot of my work was with patients who developed memory problems and sometimes dementia and I remember I'd just become a consultant I was probably about your age then or just a wee bit older I just become a consultant was the top level in 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 NHS doctors mm-hmm. for old age psychiatry and a colleague said said to me Peter this is the future of old age psychiatry and he handed me a document that was you know really thick hundreds of pages and it was called bpsd and i thought i've never heard of bpsd what is bpsd and to cut it short bpsd stands for behavioral psychological symptoms in dementia and i followed this and it was all about treating these symptoms and these were symptoms like depression anxiety hallucinations delusions psychosis agitation and there was a whole list of medications it was hundreds of pages and it was only maybe about four or five years later, I began to realize, I need to find more out about this. And when I looked into it, I found out that this almost this entire document 
had been written primarily by the industry. And at that time, we were beginning to see old, older people. We were prescribing routinely, and I, I, was, I didn't like it, but there was so much pressure to prescribe old people, often with dementia, frail, with some really very powerful, and I have to say, quite toxic drugs. And I thought, I need to do something about this. So what I did was, I thought, well, if this is the issue, if it is about industry, we need to find out why. Let's try and establish an evidence base. Is it about what the, um, is it about the papers that you mentioned, the research papers, or is it about how I'm being educated to prescribe as a psychiatrist in Scotland? And I came to the conclusion, that's what I want to look at. So what I did is I raised with the Scottish Parliament, and it went quite well, is a petition for what's called Sunshine Legislation, and it's the equivalent of the UK yeah. Physicians Act. And essentially the idea is that sunshine is a disinfectant, and it would make, if you had this legislation, it would make people who educate us, or scientists and academics, it mandatory for them to declare how much they're paid from industry. And to cut a long story short, I took this through the Scottish Parliament, um, the, event the Scottish government eventually did an independent consultation with the Scottish, with some of the Scottish public. The Scottish public, in the majority, agreed that we should have sunshine legislation. And I mean, this is not a political comment. You know, the governments can do what they want. But the government decided to ignore what the Scottish people wanted. So there was a paper in the BMJ, maybe about four or five years, about kept in, wasn't by me, kept in the dark. It was how Scotland, as a government, had decided not to introduce sunshine legislation. And I think that was a mistake. I realise sunshine legislation in itself is not going to solve this problem, but at least if we can see this week, for, if I can give you an example why this still matters, this week has been the Royal, I no longer watch these things, and I never went actually to the Royal College of Psychiatrists International Congress, and it has thousands of people attending from, not just in the UK, across the world, these are prescribers, it's highly influential. Now nobody at this meeting is paid to present, let me make that clear first of all, and the vast majority of the doctors and psychiatrists in the audience are not paid by the pharmaceutical industry. But there is a small group, what I call the narrative controllers, who have been career long paid opinion leaders for the pharmaceutical industry and have been there 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Many of them are coming up to their retirement and they are still educating. And there is no way, absolutely no way of finding out how much they may, they may have been paid in recent weeks, recent in, re in previous months, previous years or as a career. And I think the scale of the payments could be massive. And I think we need to know this if we're to know, if we're to really think about informed consent. Informed consent should be based on transparency, on the scientific method, the scientific process, and things that feed into that, including vested interests. And if we don't have this information, we don't know. And I'll, I'll, I'm going to stop very quickly, but I just want to make one example why this matters. Because a few years ago, you're probably aware, he's, he's a widely known worldwide, and I'm not picking on him, I'm just picking on him because he visited the UK to educate British psychiatrists are prescribing antipsychotics, not antidepressants. And his name is Professor Stephen Stahl. And I was there, I never knew what he looked like. I was very aware of him because Stahl diagrams, the neurotransmitter endings, saturated my education. They were everywhere. Uh, you drug reps used to bring them along and I would present them to patients and say, look, you've got a chemical imbalance. Take this drug and it will address this chemical imbalance. Anyway, Stephen Stahl was, he was my, I'm not saying he's totally pinned to the chemical imbalance, but he has had a worldwide influence. I suspect very few in the world have been paid more from the pharmaceutical industry than Stephen Stahl. So he came to the UK, was educating British psychiatrists, and because he was American, I could look up how much he'd been paid in the last two years. And I discovered that he'd been paid three and a half million pounds, million dollars from the pharmaceutical industry from 15 different companies in the last two years. And one of the major contributors was to the drug, loracidone, that he was quite aggressively promoting at two UK psychiatrists. And I thought, well, if that's Stephen Stahl, how, how, I, I, I take the case that he's maybe an extreme example, but how can we be assured in the UK 
that those who are educated, like this week at the Royal College of Psychiatrists International Conference, are not in the same league of potential biases through uh, financial interests. And I think we as public who are prescribed drugs, just anybody, I think we have the right to know because it's not about their lives. It's not about intruding on them. I'm not saying they're bad for being paid opinion leaders. That's their decision. What I'm saying is that at the end of the day, it's people like me, you, everybody, our parents, children, who may end up on psychiatric drugs or other drugs, not just psychiatry. And the factors involved in making that drug appear safe and effective are based on studies by pharma that are very short, that have limited their look at potential side effects and are then widely promoted by this small group of narrative controllers. And it's time to end this. And uh, I, I've, I've kind of given up. I just, if I can just, I'll just give, I just want to give you one quote because the Royal College of Psychiatrists, which are the leading organisation in the UK, and they haven't treated me very well for speaking up. I just, I politely ask questions persistently, but boy, oh boy, I mean, they were behind my decision to retire early, but they would, they would say things like this. They would say that just recently, um, one second. Um, okay. Um, right. I'll just get to the point here. Um, sorry. Um, she said something about, um, I can find it. I've got it here. It was it was kind of a statement to minimise the effect of the pharmaceutical industry. And whenever anybody pe people talk to me, um, do do. So the college has said things like, I've asked them whether they support sunshine legislation, and they will say things like, "We have an appropriately puritanical relationship with pharma." That was the chief executive officer, and then the more recent chief executive officer. College policies and procedures around declarations of interest are sufficiently robust. And then when I finally pushed them, I finally got. Well, not just me, but a few other people, because I asked them, do you support Sunshine legislation or not? And they sent me a one line sentence saying, which was really a non-response. This is a matter for the government to decide. Cop out. Cop out. This is healthcare. You are the ones treating patients, psychiatrists. You, it's not for the government just to decide. You should be putting your position forward. Is, this a, is transparency a good thing or a bad thing? So the, the psychiatrists cop it. And then, I'm sorry, I've got the quote. The the the, the not the current president, but uh, the president of the Royal College of Skies in 2019 said to, said widely on our very, she's got a big social media platform. Despite what some people think, most clinicians in the UK are not influenced by the pharmaceutical industry. And I did a wee blog about it and I put, the key word in this statement is influence. I worked as an NHS, sorry, I'm reading here. Okay. I worked as an NHS psychiatrist for 25 years and my experience was that the majority of my colleagues did not work in any way for the pharmaceutical industry. However, my research for a Sunshine Act has revealed that in terms of influence on prescribing, the pharmaceutical industry relies on a group of academics and doctors and sometimes allied health professionals like pharmacists. This group has been described as key opinion leaders, but perhaps more accurately as paid opinion leaders. My experience as an NHS doctor was that my colleagues were generally unaware that they were being educated for mandatory, that's you, you have no option, continuing medical education by influential professionals who have received payments from the pharmaceutical industry. It is my understanding that, generally speaking, the pharmaceutical industry spends more of its revenue on marketing than it does on research and innovation. This fact, I would suggest, is evidence itself. So um, I, I raise this not to pick on the Royal College of Psychiatrists, but they're in a, they're in a genuine position of power who bring about change. And I'm afraid this is a good old Scottish word. They've done diddly squat, diddly squat. And I think I'm going to be bold here. I've got nothing to lose. I've already I had to get out of medicine early, but um, I think it's shameful.
I think it's shameful. <laughs> I think if, if psychiatry wants to retain trust in people, it should stop being so defensive. It should adopt the true scientific processes which are based on disinterestedness and try and pursue that as best they can. Right? I've done I've got that with my soapbox moment. <laughs> No, no, that I, I completely agree. And, you know, I, I've been in so many conferences and, you know, the influence is just, I mean, it's, it's also, you know, take Stephen Stahl. And, uh, for those of you who don't know him, he's, um, probably, yeah, yeah, like, like you were saying, one of the most well-known psychopharmacologists who catalogs kind of the receptor effects of every single drug and provides brief blurbs about, you know, how to dose. He is, he essentially compi- compiles all of the evidence on, on how to initiate people on the drugs, what to monitor for, and he puts them in books for students. Um, yeah. And it's it's very, um, you know, the again the, the the thing that I became really interested in over time was subtle influence um, because there's nothing wrong with what Stephen Stahl does, you know, to 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 put this information there. But when but when you have a group of people who fund Stephen Stahl to go and talk at every single conference. And him alongside, you know, the majority of the panelists are people like Stephen Stahl. Um, then again, it starts to, and almost promote a way of thinking about mental illness. And for that is that, you know, let's think about it in a very chemical way. Let's think about it in terms of receptor pharmacology and, and dosing and everything like that. Again, hmm, maybe not evil, maybe, maybe not bad in any way, but what we do know, um, and, and I guess where I live is, is the things that are not said. And so I, I live in a world where I treat people who, if they come into my office, they've been, they've been harmed. And most often their, their lives and their family lives have been ruined. You know, their, their loved ones are looking at someone who is a, who, who they're genuinely scared may never be the same person they were before. I mean, it is, it's a place of, you know, utter despair and sadness. And so, I look there and, and so many of the stories I hear is I'd moved town, you know, I was sad. I got on this medication because I was lonely. This happened 10 years ago. I tried to stop. Things fell apart. I was going through a divorce. My doctor told me it was safe and effective. I got on the medication. I never thought I'd have any problems doing this or, or something like that. I was having trouble in school, you know, you know, we had someone come through and, and talk about the dangers of depression and anxiety. My mom was taking the medication. I thought it was safe as well. I figured there's no harm in me getting on this. And so, so you, so I, I would hear these stories and then, and these people, you know, they inevitably end up in the office in front of a psychiatrist or a family medicine doctor or a GP. And, um, you know, when they've been sitting in conferences, you know, that's just been receptor pharmacology, receptor pharmacology, you know, depression, it's undiagnosed, it's stigmatized, you know, make sure you treat depression, you know, you want to make sure people, you know, there's no stigma about taking medications, which are really the main, the, the main narratives that are kind of really, you know, they're, they're pushed again, each on their own, you know, are not evil or, or bad in any way, but when they're packaged and repeatedly said, it kind of pushes someone who's a busy GP or something like that to say, what's the big deal? You know? Okay. So they start them on the medication and I want to contrast this with what I really believe is solid mental health advice and what I think everyone genuinely knows within their gut and they would want for their loved ones is if, you know, they're having something like depression and anxiety to say, okay, let's slow down a minute. You know, tell me really what's going on in your life. You know, let me learn about you. Let me learn about how you handle stress. Let me learn about how you, 
deal with conflicts in relationships. Let's, let's see if there's ways that we can figure this out. Let's take some time. Tell me about your diet. You know, you know, are you having GI problems? You know, there's a lot of dietary stuff that can make huge impacts on people. Tell me about your use of stimulants, your use of caffeine, your use of nicotine, uh, maybe recreational drugs and alcohol. Let's start there. Let's kind of talk about, about those things. Um, let's talk about exercise. And so these are the speakers. These are the key opinion leaders that you will never see at conferences for GPs or, or, um, or psychiatrists. Or maybe if you do, it's one person, you know, versus like 19 who are, you know, talking about receptive pharmacology and clinical trial. And so the effect that that has is one where, you know, doctors aren't even talking about it. You know, they're not addressing it. You know, they're just saying that's not really real medicine. Those things don't really make a big difference. They make a massive difference. Um, and, and so I think that's also a subtle, you know, there's this, this other subtle way in which, um, quality mental health, which people know in their heart and which what they would want for their loved ones has really been, um, kind of, kind of, you know, put, pushed aside. And so that's, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's my kind of sub-box, you know, there. And then, and that's a, that's and a so, very clear summary and I totally agree with yeah, every word. Yeah. 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 Um, the other thing that is a big problem, and this is really with the benzodiazepines, is um, that even in the US, we have it in the drug labels that, you know, people have protracted withdrawal, essentially brain injury. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, no one knows about it. You know, they put it in the drug yeah. label yeah. and the regulators are completely, mm-hmm. you know, they're not doing any risk mitigation. They're not sending letters out to GPs and psychiatrists. And so, this stuff just sits there and, and, and that same thing happens, you know, people end up parroting what they hear in conferences, which is, you know, these drugs are safe and effective. And like you said, you know, well, maybe it's more like I said, um, that there's, you know, the, the devil is really in the omission because safe and effective for what, you know, for, for six weeks, yeah. you know, in a population of 500 people. And for a marginal, about, marginal benefit. Yeah. And that's true, not just for psychiatry, yeah. but for most drugs. People don't tend to realize this. You just have to prove you're just slightly better than, so it's just a marginal benefit over short-term studies. And then when, when Peter walks in and he says, you know, my whole life is upside down. You know, I've just put my, my family through literal hell. You know, I've lost a year of my life. You know, you cannot even imagine how how disruptive this has been to me and my loved ones, you know, and, and then it's like, oh, but it's safe and effective. You know, what is Peter talking about? But it's like, you know, but yeah, he was on the drug for several years. You know, it's the safety data from that study do not relate to someone who's been taking the drug for, you know, more than, you know, 12 weeks or something like that. You know, it's, 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 there's other aspects that are, that are really distressing and even now are distressing. One of the reasons I'm not on social media, um, one, it's not my kind of thing. I don't like promoting myself. I just do what I do. I, I try and stand up and do my best, even I get though I've got faults and get things wrong. But I try and stand up for what I think are good principles for science, ethical and ethical healthcare. Um, but what, I'm, what I saw on social media, when I was briefly on it um, probably 2014 for about six months. And I first thought it's great because it's a leveler. It levels out people who are on high positions of power and you can say things that, you, that they don't want you to ask them. But I quickly realised how nasty it can be. And I re- I'm not going to mention any names here, but there's some very senior members of the Royal College of Psychiatrists, for example, and I'm sure it's the same in America and Canada and Australia, 
who are extremely nasty and get away with some what if, if it was in the clinic would be most unprofessional behavior and it goes with a blind eye by the royal college of psychiatrists so i'm routinely caught there's there's one there's one very senior psychiatrist who's talking at the royal college of psychiatrists this week i've never met him he's an old age psychiatrist and he calls me a stalker for God's sake, man! What's a stalker? A stalker is somebody that um, has he think he's he's used. Um, on, this is when I was on social media. He used an online bingo card to say that mm-hmm. I had all the criteria for um, being sexually um, uh, having a sexual attraction for him. How bizarre! But more worryingly, mm-hmm. somebody in such a he, this was a former dean of the Royal College of Psychiatrists, and he's been supported by several presidents. He goes around anybody. And I know he's not alone in this, but anybody who asks who asks questions that don't won't necessarily lead to positive answers about psychiatry, he calls them either trolls, stalkers, um, or personality disorders. He's even diagnosed people. I mean, this is just one example, but he's a, it's an extreme example. But this shouldn't go on. Psychiatrists, if if we we want to be valued, we should listen to people's experience. And if if there's messages that they don't want to hear, that's I understand that. But don't just label people because that's the very stigma. In- instantly label well, people. L- let me ask you about this because there's there seems to be very little appetite for a conversation that doesn't say antidepressants save lives. You know, mm-hmm. as soon as you start talking about the risks of them, yeah. I see people labeled as being uh, dangerous or harmful or pill shaming or mm-hmm. you know dissuading people from getting the help that they seek. And what I always see. Whatever, what I always think is that you're trying to say that the, the people who are helped by these medications are more important than the people that are harmed. And, and that's, and that's not, and that's not fair. You know, the, you know, the voices for both sides need to be heard. So, yeah. but there's this intimidation, you know, and it was definitely something that I felt kind of subtly, um, you know, through my, throughout my training and then maybe a little bit more loudly when I saw people I really admired uh, talk about these things, you know, people like David Healy and I look yeah. at what happened to him and, and, and such that it's really there. Could you speak to, to some of that, the kind yeah. of the, the intimidation yeah. Yeah. Um, that that's out there about talking about harms? Yeah. Um, I, again, I, I won't go into specific like I did before, but I think, um, I think I'm talking about medicine here generally, but I think psychiatry is particularly defensive if I may say so and I was aware of this myself because it's I don't know if you get the same in, in, in America but there's this feeling that we're, we're not proper doctors you know some people say they're psychiatrists they're not proper doctors and I think that leads to a sort of defensiveness and perhaps an overreach into what when something is, that's considered truly scientific like neurotransmitters comes along which is important and valid and something we look at it's it's, it's grasped with great enthusiasm. Peter I just want to say it's 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 been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I'm going to have to get in touch and set up another one of these. So, Peter, thank you again so much for coming on. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to see the full video interview, we also post these to YouTube. Just go to Wittering Psychiatry on YouTube to find those. You'll also find several YouTube exclusive videos from doctors Yosef and Marissa posted several times a week. Finally, if you need help with your drug taper, getting a second opinion, or managing your post-acute withdrawal, come visit us at witduringpsychiatry.com. Our sole focus is on helping patients regain control of their lives and achieve optimal mental health on as little medications as possible.